Welcome to the Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. Now, if you'll remember last week, we started our discussion of the film Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, and we left off with Jack and his crew facing bad weather, a mysterious enemy, and a Jonah aboard. This week in part two, we talk about Jack, Stephen, leadership, music, and the human condition And we all share the fervent wish that somebody, please, please, please turn the canon into a series soon. Uh, Very special thanks to Steve Morris and John Roca of the Cinephiles for allowing us to rebroadcast this episode in its entirety for your enjoyment. If you love good movies, check out the Cinephiles podcast. And remember to join us again next week as we continue Reverse of the Metal. England is under threat of invasion. And though we be on the far side of the world, this ship is our home. This ship is England. So it's every hand to his rope or gun, quicks the word and sharps the action. After all, surprise is on our side. Welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where we are continuing our exploration of Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, you landlubbers. No, I'm just kidding. Hello, everyone. I'm John Rocha. I'm a writer, producer, and host uh, here in San Diego, California. Also excited to be remaining on the ship and uh, talking more about Master and Commander, Far Side of the World. And, of course, we can't discuss a movie based on these Patrick O'Brien novels without our resident Patrick O'Brien experts, the hosts of The Lubber's Hole. Uh, Ian and Mike, welcome back to The Cinephiles. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, always happy to proselyte for uh, for Patrick O'Brien. <laughs> I, think that's a, I think that's a good life's mission. And uh, <laughs> should we just jump right back onto the surprise? Let's do it. Oh, please. So, where we left off was after just the tragic death of a seaman where he was overboard and swimming back to grab onto some wreckage. And we finally had to cut the wreckage free, sending him to his death. And not only is that a tragic event for everyone on board, but it also continues this idea that there might be a Jonah. And we move in through the cabin skylight down to Stephen and Jack, who are having a very serious conversation about death. The deaths in actual battle are the easiest to bear. For my own part, those who die under my knife or from subsequent infection, I have to remind myself that it was the enemy that killed them, not me. That young man was a casualty of war. And I think that's certainly, you know, it's one of those things that's cold comfort. You know what I mean? (laughs) We all agreed in our last episode that Jack did what was necessary. As you said yourself, you have to choose the lesser of two evils. Weevils. And then, in talking about the crew, Jack asked Stephen a question. The crew will take it badly. Wally was popular. Have they expressed any feelings on the matter to you? And this is a classic line from the book. Jack, before answering, I'm compelled to ask, am I speaking with my old friend or to the ship's captain? You see, to the ship's captain, I'd say there's little I detest more than an informant. Now you're talking like an Irishman. Well, I am an Irishman. (laughs) One of the things that happens throughout the books is Jack putting his foot in his mouth in one way or another insulting Stephen or other people because he's and he's such a nice guy but he's so (laughs) dumb about stuff like this 
He's got he's got such just kind of cloth ear, hasn't he? For all the kind of sensitivities and nuances, but not about Stephen's nationality especially, but about anybody who is in any way kind of alien or unfamiliar to him. And I really like the the performance here. I think they both brought that out. Well, you know what I think is is it's, it's, I'm trying to think of how the right way to say it about Jack is his heart is so completely in the right place like. that his total insensitivity is almost always forgiven because he doesn't mean it in an insulting way. He's just, you know, dumb about that stuff. Mm. And then we get into this discussion about, is it right for Jack to continue to chase this ship? The men, of course, they would follow Lucky Jack anywhere, rightfully confident of victory. But therein lies the problem. You're not accustomed to defeat. And chasing this larger, faster ship with its long guns is beginning to smack of pride. What do you think about Jack's decision to chase the Phantom to the far side of the world? I think they're landing quite hard on this, and I think they're trying to give us this this reason or keep us speculating about the reason why mm-hmm. Jack is so motivated and so pursued because it's a, it's a little bit ambiguous all the way through the movie. And as we're going to hear in this little bit of dialogue, he owns up to the fact that he's doing it right. as an overreach, right? He's going far in advance of his orders, and it really nicely shows without telling a little bit of pride that we're giving to the, uh, at least to the Russell Crowe version of Jack Aubrey, a bit of a desire, as we said in the last episode, to show off and kind of present his status to the crew. I, I think he doesn't know when to stop. I, I think the, the Russell Crowe version of Jack Aubrey has a bit of a lack of self-control. We're going to see some of that later on this episode. And I think he just doesn't know when to stop. And he's a bit of a big kid. And I wonder how they evolved the way the scene was put together, knowing that they had the Russell Crowe version of Jack Aubrey. Viewing the world through your microscope is your prerogative. This is a ship of war, and I will grind whatever grist the mill requires in order to fulfill my duty. I really enjoyed the dialogue. Part of me was listening for all those really well-turned lines that are from the books, as you said, Steve. But they also did a great job creating some dialogue that was completely original, that expressed a lot of the character of Stephen and Jack. Um, Mike and I like to geek out sometimes on, on the language, on the authenticity of language. And I will grind whatever grist the mill requires to fulfill my duty is absolutely not a phrase that ever appeared in the books. Um, we sometimes geek out looking at when these words appeared in the English language. We use Google Ngram and these kind of tools to say, when did these phrases arise? This is nowhere near being an early 19th century phrase, but it sounds absolutely right coming from the mouth of Jack. And Crow delivers it with this great rhythm and this great authority. And I sat there kind of nodding along thinking, yeah, this is, this is fine and in character. Yeah, with the Jack Aubrey from the books, is this in character as well, what we see? him like question no, like the, I don't okay think so. so okay so then this is obviously done for narrative conflict for the viewer right, right? like we're right. setting up is this guy too much is he pushing past where he should be i mean the reaction from everybody you can hear a pin drop when he turns around and says we're not going back to blah 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 we're going after this ship everyone is scared everyone is nervous so immediately as the viewer if you haven't read the books you're like okay is this guy going to complete this mission? Is this another foolhardy decision by a headstrong captain? Or does he really believe he can do this? And certainly right afterwards, we have that moment where he's like, oh, that's 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 captaining son or whatever he says, or that's, uh, you know, marine tactical, whatever he says. But like, it's that kind of feeling like, okay, so he can pull rabbits out of hats. So the fact that he's going after this guy 
it excites you as a viewer because you're like, everyone likes a little bit of revenge. Everyone likes a, like another shot at the title if they lose it the first time around. So you go with him and he's such an easy guy to root for that I think it's a smart move in the movie to make you question whether he's doing the right thing or not. I always wondered too in this setup that in the books we see Jack develop and you know you know we we, mm. we we follow years and years of this guy and he's a very different guy along the way and i thought you know how do you kind of take this sort of greatest hits selection from various books and give some of this feeling and i kind of wondered if this was part of the setup for that are we going to mm. see jack develop through this movie and develop his character through this movie um, is he going to be that guy, as John said, that's going to, you know, I'm going to go after it and, and no matter what, is it this Russell Crowe version or are we also going to see him develop a little bit into the book version of the later years, Jack Aubrey? So mm. hey, stick a pin in that. Let's come back and see what we see for me. What's so interesting about this is that Patrick O'Brien does this thing that's basically impossible, which is he writes these books that don't have classic story structure right. and don't have classic character development. Mm -hmm. And the books are super, super subtle. And what Peter Weir has done is say, no, I need a conflict that's right up front and clear character development because I got a two hour movie to tell my story. And so he takes he what he does is he creates this idea of Jack's pride how much is jack's pride right, right and how much is what his duty and then that creates conflict with him and steven and, and it amplifies that and you know literally in the book that i'm endlessly writing on directing you can't you know the all, the best way to get information out is through conflict so if jack and steven aren't arguing with each other then we're not going to know all this stuff that we need to know we have and the same with the master being worried about going after the ship if we, these people mm. aren't arguing with it we're not going to find out our information. Now, Patrick O'Brien in his, as Peter Weir calls it, his 5,000 page novel, like <laughs> he has plenty of time to get this stuff out. But no, I would say this is definitely not in character for Jack. In fact, the the two big time, I mean, Jack faces greater odds over and over again in the books, mm -hmm. but he always does it for very specific reasons. And the first one being the battle against the Caco Fuego in, in the first book. Well, he runs from that ship the first time it's like, no, of course we can't fight that shit. It's tw twice as big as us three times the men. There's no way we can go against it, but then he has no choice. And the same in what this is sort of based on, which is in desolation Island and the chase with the Voxamite. Right. It's the Voxamite that's chasing them. It's not him. He doesn't turn around and go, I'm going to take on this ship. That's way bigger and chase it. Mm -hmm. um, Jack is a much more reasonable and complicated person in the books than this here. But I think for the movie, this conflict works really, really mm -hmm. well. Yes. But, and I love the way it ends. Whatever the cost. Whatever the cost. To follow orders with no regard for cost. Can you really claim there's nothing personal in this call to duty? On deck, we're making repairs. They can't hold their course because of the wind, and so they have to go further south. And we cut to, and it's just amazing what these ships did. We cut to the ship sailing through a blizzard, through snow, and the thing that is just most painful about this moment is as we pan across the ship and this beautiful shot as it sails by, we see a guy with his pants down in the head <laughs> taking a dump in the middle of a blizzard because that's what you had to do. I love the thought listening to Gord Laco tell this that they're in Mexico. They're on this thing. They've chipped tons of ice and thrown it on this boat. So the guy's sitting in chipped ice in Mexico in the heat in the blizzard. <laughs> 
Making movies is weird. Oh, amen. <laughs> For the authenticity geeks out there, we should own up to the fact that if he'd been really taking a dump in the real heads, he would have been facing inward, and then the results would have been going out, but outboard, right? But as it is, he's basically t- taking a dump on his friend's heads because he's facing outboard. Right, right. So, so we get, and the actor was perfectly okay with that. They said they called the guy and said, "Do you want a close up?" He said, "Sure. What have I got to do?" They said, "Drop your pants. You're going in the blizzard. You're going to take a crap." Right. I'm fine. I'm done with that. <laughs> Look, anything to get your union card, I think. (laughs) Keep your insurance. Yeah. 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 And now we go to another dinner and we hear that we finally turn north. So we're going to get out of this cold snow. By way of anticipation of this event, I have asked uh, Killick to uh, prepare something special. I love that he calls out for Killick, who's standing right behind him. Killick! Killick there. more of the year, anyway. Gentlemen, I give you... Our destination. And there is a giant pudding in the shape of the Galapagos Islands. <laughs> and he hands out different pieces to different crew members and then takes the the Acheron, which he believes will be there because that's where the whaling ships are bringing on cargo. So it's a good target for them. And he grabs the Acheron himself, the Acheron pudding, and pops it into his mouth to big laughter. A point of contention. I, I, I read online loads of responses from fans who really dislike that moment. Like that's just a bit... You know, a bit too far with the mm. riotous, big kid, teenagery Russell Crowe version of Jack Aubrey, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm kind of part with him. But the, the the symbolism of him going, yeah, 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 the ship she's for me, it ties in well with the sort of unconstrained pride and swagger that he had that he was kind of confessing to, just even in the mm. previous scene. There's no question in my mind that in the books, Jack wouldn't do that. And he, and he doesn't do it. Yeah, and he doesn't. Right. Because uh, there is the scene where they have the Galapagos. Exactly. But what I would say is, does the Russell Crowe version of Jack Aubrey, does it make sense for him to do it? And I think it totally does. Absolutely. I think it's completely in character. It's, and it's setting up this, this character arc that we're watching develop here. And then the men start singing. Safe and sound at home again. Let the waters roar, Jack. Long wing tossed on the rolling main. Now we're safe ashore, Jack. And you can see Stephen, who's not a participator and doesn't want to join in. And then he just just can't help himself. Because one of the things about Stephen Maturin is as much as he's grumpy, he loves these sailors. He really yeah. does. By the way, Peter Weir uh, created an actors-only hangout that was like an English gentleman's club because he wanted them to all go hang out together and build friendship and camaraderie. And the other thing that he did was the crew was not allowed into this club unless an actor gave them a written invitation, which, of wow. course, by the end of the shoot, they, wow. were, all, they were all there. Mm-hmm. But it made, they wanted it to feel a little exclusive, and uh, it was nicknamed the Monkey Bar, by the way. Right. To make okay. a l- little bit of a, a, a diatribe here real quick, this happens in sports as well. The delineation of who gets allowed into what clubs are created. Back in the 1980s, the team that I rooted for, the, the Redskins, yep. the, the Washington football team now, they had a club. That was only for the tough guys on the team, and you could and you wow. would and sit there. They would drink, and it was like this broom closet they tricked out to be just a place for the dudes. And Joe Theismann, who was the pretty boy quarterback, was desperate to be part of the club, and for two years kept lobbying and lobbying. And it wasn't until one particular play where he got absolutely smashed, got right back up and ran back up and tackled the guy down the field that he was allowed to be a member of the club. So it's this exclusivity amongst men is not unusual in any format uh, where men are trapped together uh, in a pursuit of something, whether it be a Super Bowl or a ship. It has that kind of vibe to it, and you have to earn your 
station to a degree, uh, for sure. So let me ask a question there, John. I guess Jack Aubrey's not a pretty boy quarterback. No. What 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 field what what position on the field of play do you think Jack football? Jack's Jack? quarterback. Jack is yeah. a quarterback, but he's like Ben. He's like those uh, like Ben Roethlisberger type right, quarterbacks. Right, right. You know those big burly guys who uh, who run and who do pull miracles out of hats when plays break down. He just has right. an ability to do that. I think he's absolutely that kind of quarterback for sure. If I was to connect him to anything after this wonderful dinner, Steven is getting really, really excited about visiting the Galapagos. They're said to be full of strange and wonderful beasts. Um, And Jack says, look, when we get there, we got to get food. We got to get water. You're going to have plenty of time to do (laughs) all the collecting you want. You'll be the first naturalist to set foot on the islands. I'll wager. And Stephen replies with the way that you on the lover's hole frequently end your episodes. Can you tell us what you say? I would like that of all things. Yeah. (laughs) There's just certain classic Patrick O'Brien sort of lines. Stephen is with uh, Lord Blakeney and he is looking through pictures of books. And this is the first we see of the, the bug that looks like a stick. And we start talking about disguises, spiders that can disguise themselves as ants, insects that take on the shape of a thorn. And we hear this line where he says did god make them change does god make them change yes certainly but did they also change themselves now that is a question isn't it you want to know why i think this line is in there oh absolutely when you go to the galapagos you cannot not think about charles darwin and charles darwin showed up at the galapagos about 20 years after this and he was on a british naval ship which is the beagle and the Galapagos Islands is the origin where he, the very beginnings of his idea of evolution and natural selection. And so having a discussion about does God change these animals or do they change themselves on our way to, with a naturalist on our way to the Galapagos, who's on a British naval ship. I mean, you can't not think about Charles Darwin. You can't. And it does a couple of really important things. I really love this scene. And M- Mike's rolling his eyes now because he's reading all the notes I've written just about this scene. And the, a couple of things happen. We, we plant this idea of the scientific importance, the kind of scientific kudos attached to visiting the Galapagos. And some of that's going to get paid off later, later, later in the final act, which we'll come to. But it does a couple of other things. It sets up this really close connection between Stephen and Lord Blakeney. And we, we know that tender, caring, nourishing adult-child relationships are a big part of Patrick O'Brien, and they are going to become a bigger part of this story. So Stephen gets a relationship outside of the relationship that he has with Jack. It also plants in our heads, I think, the idea that when Stephen wants to go visit in the Galapagos, it's not just tourism. Mm. It's not just kind of a gentleman's indulgence. There's a genuine scientific question at this time, at this age, and there's genuine scientific purpose behind Stephen as a natural philosopher wanting to go to the island. And by the way, we get the line that says Stephen might be the first European naturalist to visit the Galapagos. I'm pretty sure Wikipedia says it, so it must be true. I'm pretty sure that Master and Commander Far Side of the World was the first movie to film on location in the Galapagos. But I don't know if wow. you guys mm. have got a better inside scoop than I have on that. I don't. I do not. What I do know is that the plan was just to shoot in Baja and have that fake as the Galapagos. And then right. they just went, you can't fake oh. the Galapagos. And so what <laughs> they did a lot is a lot of the shots are in Baja and then they're compositing in backgrounds from the Galapagos. And they did a little bit of shooting there because it just looks like it looks. There's a, there's a bit of cookery that goes on later on that I might come back to right. <laughs> that suggests to me that at least their minds are in Baja, if not, <laughs> if their bodies are in Galapagos. You can't fake the Galapagos, pal. 
Yeah. I like that. <laughs> and that's where we now arrive. And we're looking out at this ship at this incredible place. And Stephen is looking and he sees the first thing he sees is a cormorant uh, and that it's a flightless cormorant. And that's unknown to science. The dragons don't seem to bother them. No, they're a type of iguana, I should think, and therefore they're vegetarian. And then Blakeney says, oh, it looks like they're going for a swim. Iguanas don't swim, they're land animals. These ones do. And you watch that iguana jump in the water. Well, I'll be damned. Two new species in as many minutes. That's how incredible the Galapagos are going to be for Stephen. It's so great that he's going to have all those days to spend naturalizing all across the island. And at this moment, as Stephen is getting so excited to go to shore, the entire crew is on the land side looking out at these islands, except for Jack, who has his telescope and he's looking the other way. And the first thing he sees is some barrels in the water. And then some whalers that have been trapped on the island. And they come up to the ship and explain that their ship got captured by the Acheron and that it wasn't that long ago. And that's the direction it went. And Jack immediately changes his plan. And Stephen's face says it all at this point. (laughs) Jack, have you forgotten your promise? Subject to the requirements of the service. I could not in all conscience delay for the sake of an iguana or a giant peccary. Fascinating, no doubt. But of no immediate application. And Stephen's got a plan. He's like, it's a thin island. you got to sail all the way around. I'm going to walk across, meet you on the other side. And Jack's not having any of it. And frankly, from reading the books, I wouldn't trust Stephen to do this either. I don't think he's going to make it. <laughs> I see. So after all this time in your service, I must simply content myself to form part of this belligerent expedition. Hurry past inestimable wonders bent solely on destruction. I shall say nothing of the corruption of power or you its forget yourself, Doctor. That nerd rage. That nerd rage. <laughs> it <laughs> is. Tell me what it is. Totally nerd rage. <laughs> and they continue to argue until Jack literally puts his foot down and says, We do not have time for your damned hobby, sir! There's a reaction, and then Stephen walks out. And then we're on deck, and Blakeney, who just seems to be the most lovely character finds a beetle from the Galapagos and gives it to Stephen. Well, you to walk all day on the island, you might never come across it. Yes, that is more than likely sure. And it's just such a lovely, yeah. lovely scene. Because you know what one of the other things about this that, that I think the movie does uh, really well is there's no secrets on a ship like this. Yes. Everyone knows that Stephen yeah. is disappointed. Everyone knows they're upset at each other. And that that whole scene with Jack and Stephen arguing began with us seeing that there's like a skylight above their cabin. So obviously all the crew can hear the uh, the dirty laundry getting out of here. Um, And then we go into something that is over and over in the books, which is the great gun exercises. And this is something that is super important to Jack is he believes that the ship that will win is the one that can fire faster and more accurately. And they practice this over and over and over again. And I have to say, this is one of the things in the books where you get to the later books and you're, and I'm going like, I get it. I know what they do. I know what, what beating to divisions is. I know what the great gun exercises is. Can we like move this along a little bit? That's probably one of my very, very (laughs) few criticisms of these books is they repeat this a lot. 
This is another Quidditch game <laughs> in Harry Potter. I don't know. The well, Quidditch games are more exciting, I think, than some of the great gun exercises. Well, and I think, you know, for, for the audience, if, you, if you're going to watch a film about warships, you're going to get some gunnery porn. T- Tony Scott gave us three minutes of Tomcats taking off at the beginning of Top Gun. And at least at least Peter Weir pinned it down to, I think, 40 seconds of gunnery porn for us all while we watch all the mechanisms. I'll take of the those three minutes any day. Oh <laughs> Stephen has wax in his ears because this thing is really, really loud. Right after the the, uh, the, the great gun exercise, I, I just wanted to mention something about Jack's speech. Lads, that's not good enough. And again, this is very much the Russell Crowe movie version of Jack Aubrey. You want to see a guillotine in Piccadilly? No! You want to call that raggedy ass Napoleon your king? No! Something about the phrase kind of made me go, oh, where have I heard that before? So I go to the, all the kind of bibliographic tools and did did raggedy ass ever appear in any patrick o'brien books no it didn't did it appear in the english printed word in the 19th century the answer is hardly at all do you know where raggedy ass was famously quoted no uh (laughs) who said i won't let that second rate little raggedy ass country ruin my presidency oof uh johnson a real president lbj about exactly well done well done That is a catch. You might wonder why, I guess, mostly North American scriptwriters sitting writing a movie script in 2001, 2002, might have thought to put that phrase in there. Because it sounded good. Yeah. And because, frankly, most uh, audiences are not actually doing what you're doing and tracking the origins of each (laughs) phrase to see if it is period accurate. And wouldn't it be a sad world if they all did? Because <laughs> then you guys would be out of yes. a job. Right. Thank you. Bless you. <laughs> and then as we're excitedly chasing after the Phantom, we cut to a bright, bright, bright sun, huge in the frame. And we see the ship trapped on just a sea that looks like glass because there is no wind. <laughs> you know, and this is the frustration. You're in a sailing ship. There's no wind. You're just sitting there and the sun is beating yeah. down. And you could see how absolutely brutal this situ- situation is. And then we hear. I said unto him, for what caused the evil. And there is Joe Place speaking from the Bible. And he is talking about the story of Jonah. And we start talking about Hollem. And one of the people's listening is the guy that had to cut that rope, and that's Nagel, is listening. Morning of the battle, he doesn't have the guts to beat to quarters. Then his entire gun crew's killed, set for him. As soon as he went up the mizzen, Will falls. And whose watch was it when we lost our wind? Hollem can feel that everyone is looking yeah. at him. Yeah. It's just so sad what is happening to him. Uh, they're walking along on the deck. Joe Place salutes Hollem and Nagel doesn't salute and even knocks his shoulder into him right in front of Jack. Master at arms, take that man below and clap him in irons. Because this is the hierarchy of the ship. They are supposed to, what they say, make their obedience every time they walk by an officer, even if that officer's an 11-year-old kid. And Jack calls Hollum to his quarters. The man pushed past you without making his obedience, yet you said nothing. Why? I intended to, sir, but the right words just didn't... The right words? He was deliberately insubordinate. You know, and I so feel for him because this is, I would do this. He says, I've tried to get to know the men, sir, and be friendly, but they've taken a set against me, always whispering when I go past and giving me looks. You don't make friends with a former Jack's lad. They'll despise you in the end, think you're weak. 
it's it's so funny because in the um, American military, well, John, you could speak to this. There's yeah. the the di- distance between officers and enlisted men is mm-hmm. nearly so far. Like right. you could make friends with an officer. Yes, yes, of course. Especially when you get higher ranking, uh, it becomes easier to become friends with the higher ranking officers because you are working in conjunction to make sure the lower ranked um, officers and enlisted men will follow your leads to what you need to do when you're working together, for sure. You've nicely explained something that I sometimes bumped on, which is that in the movie, Jack Aubrey often calls Barrett Bond and Barrett calls him by his first name. And Barrett Bond mm. is a, uh, basically a senior non-com. That always bumped on me with my kind of ear for British class hierarchy mm. stuff. But to an audience that thinks of the military in, in, in a way that's a little bit more democratic, a little bit less of a steep gradient, that would, yeah. that would make a bit more sense. But by the way, I just t- to go back to Holm, I feel for this guy. I, I, he had this oh, yeah. terribly devastated, humiliated look when he got this episode happening on deck. And Jack is trying hard to say, look, there's this special thing called leadership and I'd really like you to have it because you need to have it and I've got it and it, without it, I'm nothing. So can you just get it? And Holm's mm. face just says, I have got no place to go. You're trying to give me this advice and I have no clue how to put it into practice. And poor guy. Yeah. I think it's one of the rare missteps from Jack in the movie uh, overall, especially yeah. in command, because, yeah. and you know, we look at it in 2021 or even tw- 2002, three, four, whenever this came out, you look at it and you go, well, you can't just tell someone to achieve something who is a child. And this is just, you know, just learning how to wipe his butt or just learn how to wipe his butt a while ago, like how to achieve this certain level of respect and the truth is in any situation work military a ship yeah. they are always the crew is always going to find that one person to make fun of or that one person to blame for whatever situation and they'll come up with whatever narratives they can to make that person be the focal point of their anger and you know we see it in full metal jacket when it's private pile right it becomes yeah. that guy they focus on mm. and that happens in situations like this and it is heartbreaking to watch yeah. that poor kid because he's not going to be able to you know jack just thinks it's a gear every man can turn on and certainly this kid it, you know can cannot and it's it starts to weigh on him and i think he should have been a little more aware of how that was progressing but of course he had bigger things to worry about but still it's a member of his crew and his officers so. Yeah, I, I think what you said, John, is exactly right, which is the, the qualities that Jack is talking to are innate in him. Yes. And some people aren't supposed to be leaders. Mm-hmm. Like he says that Hollum knows his stuff in terms of sailing. And, and this is, yeah. I think, one of the problems with I'm not I don't mean to criticize your entire country, Ian, but it's <laughs> one of the problems with, uh, you know, an, inher- an inherent class system yeah. like the, like that operates here is that. If you come from a certain class, you go into the officer track from when you're a little kid. Whereas, whereas I know in the American military, everyone goes into basic. Yes. You know, like you're all going to go through the same thing. And if you show yourself to have leadership ability, you will be maybe moved towards an officer. Am I mm-hmm. being accurate, John? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was like, I come from a poor family or a relatively poor family and we became middle-class before the end of my, my dad's life. But like, uh, I get into the military, and as soon as I got to my base in Fort Meade, a number of the officers came to me because I was leading the squad, like, hey, you should become an officer. You should become an officer. So they don't care where you come from. Oh. If you show, as, as Steve said, leadership abilities, you will get the offer because they want you. They want people who can lead in those positions because if you ever go into battle, 
that's the people who yeah. are going to be able to step up in certain situations. But okay, you need to do this, this, and this. And you need to get this happen. Oh, you need to make this happen or what have you, you know. But there are other people who become officers who don't have the medal for it. And it's really tough to watch when you're an enlisted guy, when you watch the people who are officers and don't have yeah. the guts. Yeah. It's tough. It's a rough situation. Yeah. This whole class structure thing, mm. by the way, a little, little apology, if you like, for, for Patrick O'Brien as a representative of the British people. He nails this in several mm. places in the book. It, it, he was writing in the late 60s and the early 70s, and he had a very kind of psychosocial look at the world and about authority and class and mobility. And he, we've talked about this in our podcast, uh, the characters who right. get a, a positive showing are especially the lower deck guys who make it up to become an officer, like Thomas Pullings, in the, who, who's mm. a cast member here. Uh, and the people who get to look ridiculous and to look hate, hateful are officers who play on privilege. So O'Brien really nails this, but he just brings it out and makes us, you know, us British people with our slightly inbuilt class system, just kind of reminds us, makes our flesh creep a little bit with stuff like this. Jack has mm. no idea how to codify or make use of this leadership gift that he's got, and we've got people put into officer situations who are not selected for their talent at leading, they're selected because they come from the right social stratum. They even mm. used to have this thing in the Navy in the, that, that O'Brien wrote about called passing for a gentleman to make it from midshipman to lieutenant, to, to lieutenant, to use the British pronunciation, to make it from midshipman to lieutenant, you had to not only be a good seaman and to navigate and to know how to handle weapons, you had to be able to hold your knife and fork, right? <laughs> and because these are such isolated communities where the officers all eat together, and if they're of a specific class yeah, and he, someone comes right, in, I right. think it's through the Hawes hole, is that what they yeah, say? Yeah, exactly. You know, who doesn't know all that stuff, well, they're really isolated. And by yeah. the way, one of the interesting ones, I think, is that Barrett Bondin, the captain's coxswain, he has an opportunity to become an officer very early in the series because mm. Jack has sent off so many lieutenants and he's doesn't have any officers left and he goes well i could promote you bonden and bonden says no thanks yeah. <laughs> yeah. listen getting promoted isn't all it's cracked up to be because you have more yeah. responsibility Amen. and you have First people's lives right. in your hands that yeah. is a rough situation what's so interesting about setting that up i think is that throughout the books is there's no question that bonden is right up at the level of the best of anybody yeah. uh, mm. he's almost at jack's level it seems like he understands everything that's going yeah, on in the show, right. but he's an enlisted man. He's a crewman. And, and he has that nuance amongst people to kind of set them up and get them reconciled and, you know, be subtle. It, it's kind of amazing. And, and Hollum, absolutely yeah. the opposite, outcast on all levels. And, and when you were, Steve, saying a minute ago about how, you know, he kind of, you know, didn't have the decision, you know, couldn't make the call. So his whole gun crew gets blown up. I mean, they listed a bunch of things like what, you know, we lost the wind mm -hmm. when he came on board with, you know, he kept that going over all these things that are like superstitious, but they're all, you know, correlation is causation in the mind of this crew. And, and Hollum standing there listening to that and thinking I'm way old for a midshipman. I failed for Lieutenant twice. I'm a screw up. I can't get anything right. And then, then we have this Jack conversation saying, just yeah. do this. And he's to me looking like, I wish I could. I actually have no idea in my in my bones and my soul what you're talking about and how to well, make the that end of so. the scene is so rough because Jack makes this speech and then yeah. you see him. And this is where Russell Crowe is so good because yeah. you see him know it's I, useless. Yeah, you see, this yes. is not going to help. But then Stephen is saying later on, saying that you push these people too hard. Stephen, I invite you to this cabin as my friend, not to criticize nor to comment on my command. 
And I love the moment where she, Jack goes, what would you have me do? And Steven's response is, tip the ship's grog over the side. Stop that grog. By the way, these guys essentially were always drunk. <laughs> the amount of booze they were drinking every single day. Do you remember what it was? I don't remember exactly what. It's, it's how a much pint. It it's a pint of rum a day. Wow. Uh, in, in a day on which you're working, four well, hours on, four hours off. Oof. And Weir does a nice job. We see Nagel in his cups literally all day long, including when he's grinding that floor and talking about Holland right before he bumps into him. And Jack is the guy that doubles his grogration mm. when he oh, came in right. with that model. So Jack, in a way, has set him up for a little bit, of, for Nagel up for a little bit of this, too, to help get him in his cups. And I, and I think... You know, you're kind of watching Nagel, who was on Team Jack, and now is you know, with a loss of his friend Ray, with the, the continued talk about superstition, has kind of moved over to Team Phantom. Like, maybe this is Jonah. Maybe this is Phantom. And Jack can't handle all that because that's kind of outside the realm well, of this And this world. is one of the interesting things about the Jack and Stephen relationship. And I think this scene is really good, which is that even though Stephen is part of the service, he is a naval surgeon. He is generally yeah. against all ideas of hierarchy, all ideas of compulsion, anybody being forced to do what they're being forced to do. And a lot of these men are pressed men, which means somebody just grabbed them right. and put them on the ship. It's not like they didn't commit a crime. They just got grabbed. And now for the rest, you know, for years at least, and maybe for the rest of their lives, this is what they're doing. And if they just happen to not salute an 11-year-old kid, they could get whipped. Right. That's a crazy life. For God's sake, Stephen, there's hierarchies even in nature, as you've often said yourself. There is no disdain in nature. There is no humiliation. Men must be governed. Often not wisely, I will grant you, but they must be governed nonetheless. That's the excuse of every tyrant in history from Nero to Bonaparte. And I, for one, am opposed to authority. Your opposition is not my concern. Misery and oppression. And I love Jack's last line. You've come to the wrong shop for anarchy, brother. <laughs> yeah. Right from the cannon. Great right. line. And we have a hard cut right into the middle of whipping Nagel. <laughs> it's remarkable that this was just normal, yeah. you know? And on a lot of ships, not on Jack's ships, a lot of whipping. Well, all right, never mind. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm, you know, I, I don't lean as far left as you do on this, Steve. I, I, I think discipline is important. I think it is necessary. And I do think right. men will take advantage of situations and especially sometimes uneducated uh, men who have a certain predilection yeah. to mess with authority, mm. mess with the status of things and cause chaos. Sometimes you have to whip them back into shape, whip them back into, you know, into following the orders. The I'm I'm just of a different mindset of it all because the kumbaya shit ain't gonna work. You men aren't built that. No matter how much we want to believe that human beings are not built that way, not some human beings. You have to whip back into shape. Now, can you go too far? Hell yes. Can you abuse that privilege? Hell yes. Right. And that's right. the people who abuse that in power need to be taken out of power. Uh, but it isn't necessarily an unnecessary technique, I think, at that time, you know, and same thing happens in the military. There was a lot of physical abuse towards soldiers in the military to get them to focus on what they needed to do, you know. And so is it good all the time? No, of course not. But, you know, well, you know it can be necessary. You know, what's so funny is because, you know, I believe in carrots and sticks. I mean, I think that that some, sometimes mm, sometimes right. someone needs a hug and sometimes they need a kick in the ass, you know, <laughs> like I believe in both of them. But what I find really interesting, yeah. and if you forgive me for saying it this way, John, like you said, you come from a family, didn't have a lot of money. Yeah. I come from a family where there was money. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me that if we were in a class system, 
that mm-hmm. you are coming down on the side of being harsher. Yes. And I, and because, because what my worry is, is the um, abuse of power. I don't mm-hmm. trust powerful right. people to right. do the whipping correctly. That's so, so like, that's where I go. It's not that I don't think, and I, I don't want pe- people to be whipped really period, but, but it's not that I don't think there should be discipline. It's just that I'm so nervous about authority run amok. Well, and you know? there's the difference, right? You talk about, you bring up our financial stations. Right. And if we go even further in that, it's a matter of privilege versus not privilege. You were born, if you're coming from a family, you have a certain ability to believe, to question the authority. And, you know, mm, I've yeah. got the money, I'm good, you know, but this other, now I can focus on this. Those of us from the lower class, and I'm not speaking for everybody, but certainly my experience and a number of people that I've known from lower class uh, or lower class in terms of financial class, whipping ourselves is a part of the construct to achieve the things we want to achieve. And certainly my father instilled in that and for better or worse instilled in me, that idea that to be hard on myself, to push myself, to expect more. And uh, it is something I still struggle with to this day, no matter how much I've done or not done, it is still something deep within me to achieve something. So it's just Mm. like that kind of thing. And I think not, and not every poor person has that desire, right? I just happened to be one of those people that did. So I understood that the kind of sloughing off or the kind of not really kind of, you know, focusing on what needs to be done can lead to the negative result. It's so, it's so so funny because you're just, I've never known privilege, I guess, to a degree, but maybe as a man I have, but not as wealth. Sorry. Well, and I have, but it's so funny, your description of your dad and how it instilled in you this desire to, Mm. That's my that's my description of my dad. It's like mm-hmm. literally that could have been word for nice. word. Yeah. Like the feeling, even though like I wasn't the money wasn't the driving factor, but like the you must succeed, you must achieve, you must work right. hard, you must be disciplined. All that stuff, you know, haunts me as you know as I'm up yeah. at two in the morning trying to make a good episode of the Cinephiles. Sure. Like it, that's it's, but it comes from a different source. Right. Which is what I think is so interesting to me. What about you, Ian? What about your daddy? And what is your daddy? <laughs> <laughs> well, look at the conversation that O'Brien always brings up in us. And that's one of the magic, the magic of this movie is that Weir has captured that, you know, secret sauce so that we start seeing and thinking about our own lives in the mm. lives of these characters and what goes on. It, it happens in the movie. And my God, in the books, it happens all the time. Now, you guys are making me want to read these books now, but sorry, Ian, go ahead. Just, just honestly answer your question. I don't know if my dad's going to be listening. I'm not particularly privileged, but not, I wouldn't say hard scrabble background. No. I will say, just to make a connection, uh, my dad joined Her Majesty's Royal Navy as an enlisted man and got promoted wow, to a right? senior non-comma chief petty officer and was on the point of being promoted to an officer uh, wow. in, a re- in a very meritocratic way when he did this crazy thing and married my mum. Because so, <laughs> the one thing you can do, <laughs> one thing you can do in the Royal Navy, you can't buy yourself out when you're an enlisted man, but you can buy yourself out when you have a commission. Oh, wow. <laughs> in in oh, certain circumstances. Right, right. right. Which is, which is nice. how I came to be. <laughs> wow. Good thing that they did. And I think, yes. I think we're all lucky for that. Yeah. Um, after, after punishment, there is a remarkable shot of Hollum looking into a reflection in the water. And yes. then he dips his hands into it, obscuring his own reflection. And it is absolutely just this moment of self-contemplation and not in a good way Mm -hmm. this whole sequence of him aware of the whispering him aware of the hatred him getting the salutes but the salutes are if anything more insulting 
than they were before because now it's oh you got this guy whipped because he didn't salute you you know like it's just mm -hmm. it's just so painful by the way to to, to go back to, to to pushing yourself through tough situations i think holland's got it here i i, I don't know if this is exactly how the scene's meant to be seen but it seemed to me like he look he looks in the his reflection in the water barrel and he thinks I've, I've got to go. The, the, the captain said, I've got to try and put myself into an authority position. And he right. puts himself through this gauntlet of walking mm. along the deck, being eyeballed yeah. by this this almost mutinous crew. And I'm thinking, you brave, brave son of a bitch. Mm -hmm. And desperate and doomed. And heaven only knows why he did it. But he's, it's, he's clearly not as simple as somebody who's weak or a coward. No. He's somebody who's, who's lacking a thing that's needed and he just doesn't know where to get it. Yeah. It almost looked to me like he had to go through and, you know, they're below decks through this incredibly tight enclosed space where you got to bow your head and he's surrounded. He's completely packed in by all these men to get to the midshipman's berth because he's kind of going through. And then he finally almost falls into that. And he's, you know, he's spent. Um, but that that scene was amazing. It almost uh, feels like he's forced into the service by his family, by his station. Yes. Yeah. And it yeah. is not something yes. he can handle. And now that the the uh, the screws are being tightened, he's trying to figure. out, still a young man. He's trying to navigate how right. to show strength and bravery, and he may not have that gear. And so, him trying to walk through those men is, a, is in a way a protest, in a way a rebellion, in a way a fight. Uh, and then when he makes the yes. decision that he makes, I have nothing but respect for that decision that he makes, um, because yeah. it takes real strength to do that as well, in my opinion. You know, and he's clearly falling apart. I mean, like, yes, he's weeping. The doctor comes to see him. There's nothing physically wrong with him. He thinks he's been cursed. Sailors can abide a great deal, but not a Jonah. Because Jack is superstitious, too. Yep. You know, um, yeah. and then the scene, John, as you as you said, like, it's the middle of the night. Uh, I think Blakeney has the watch and Hollum comes up. He takes his hat off. Captain thinks we'll get our wind tomorrow. And the camera pushes in on Hollum and he says, I'm sure of it. And I think we know, right? I think yeah. we know where this is going to go. You've always been very kind to me. And he picks up a cannonball. Goodbye, Blakeney. And just steps overboard. And the shot of him sinking down is, oh. it's amazing. Right. And I think, I mean, I think it's tragic, but I agree yeah. with you, John. I think it's, he is doing something truly brave from his perspective. You yeah. Know? He, he is taking control of the narrative. I, I, you know, all I, I could sit through all these people coming after me, but I must reclaim who I am. And in taking this in making the decision, I'm reclaiming who I am. I'm thinking of a, a, a story I read a few uh, last year about a, a young runner at the University of Pennsylvania who killed herself. She threw herself off a parking garage and the she had struggled with fitting in. She had mm. achieved so much and won these races and was considered an Olympic hopeful and all this stuff. And she had just could not get past this sensitivity, the mental health, the stuff that she was struggling with and started to berate her herself and see decisions and comments and negative stuff in people's interactions with her. She was interpreting that. So one day she, uh, one night she just drove calmly to a parking garage, um, went all the way to the top, called her mom, called her sister, called her dad, called her, said, left a message for all of them. It was a 3am I think. And then she's a sprinter uh, and a hurdler sprinted, sprinted, sprinted and threw herself off wow. the garage. Cause for her, 
It was a way to reclaim. And she was very, apparently from every, what everybody said, she was very peaceful about the decision. She knew it was the right thing for her. And I think here, Hollum, his peacefulness is very reminiscent of Robert Sean Leonard at the end of Dead, Dead Poet Society, taking yes. off the thing. Yeah. Dude, just there's this once a line has been crossed for a human being, and this gear is possible within this human being, the moment itself is treated as very simply that needs to be done. It is one of the rare moments of strength, maybe, and no questioning that people have sometimes who suffer with things like mental health and things like uh, situations like this. And I think there's a needs to be more respect given to decisions like this. Well, and, and right before he goes mm. to do this, he hears place telling mm. the other crew members that, you know, as soon as Hollum has the watch, the phantom will arise and take us all right. down to the hot place. Right. So in a way there's a little bit of, you know what, we're never going to get to my watch. I'm not going right. to allow that to happen yeah. to your point. Uh, I'm going to do that. I, I would, for anybody that's listening, yeah. who, whoever gets towards this place, say two things. One, you know, do like Herman Hesse's book, Siddhartha, you know, make a decision like 20 years from now to say, okay, that morning I'm going to decide when I shave, whether I mm. slit my throat or not. And, and knowing you have that outdoor, don't, you don't have to exactly. do it right this second. Absolutely. Two, two, from somebody who's been on the other side yeah. of that phone line, you know, sometimes you get that clarity but it won't mm -hmm. last, get get through that spot. So while on the one hand from literature, we are talking about an incredible moment here yeah. for Holland. If it's in your life, you know, don't wear this yeah. as a badge. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I, it's such an interesting moment because I think it's her, I think from Holland's perspective, I think he believes that he is the Jonah. Mm -hmm. And I think he firmly believes no, absolutely. that no the question. lives of the people on his ship are dependent upon yes. him sacrificing yeah. his life. Yes. As personified in Blakeney, who he's looking yeah. at going, you know, would I let you go down? No, yeah. no, no. Um, and then it's the funeral the next day. And as oh. and I love what Jack says, he says, if there are those among us who thought ill of Mr. Hollum, spoke ill of him, or failed him in respect of fellowship. I think that's yeah. a great. I, I, the fact that Jack says failed him, we failed him, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's yes. really great. And we ask for your forgiveness, Lord. And we ask for his. And it's that moment, and we ask for his forgiveness. And then they get their wind. Which, so how are you left to feel if yeah. they, when they do get right. their wind? Was it real? Was it true? And it only validates these men for feeling this way about Hollem and almost undercuts Jack's words. Or, or does it flip the other side to say, okay, and Killick hands Jack the, you know, the Old Testament mm. to, you know, with Jack stands up to talk and he's got the book of Jonah open. Like, here mm. you go, Jack, tell him what's so. And Jack closes it and looks at Killick like, no, this is not where yeah. we're going with this. This That's is true. not a Jonah thing. Then he asks for forgiveness from God and from Hollem for what we did. So to me, almost the statement is, we're the Jonah. That's what I think too. Oh, interesting. Because yeah. the wind, yeah, it, the wind doesn't come when Hollem dies. The wind right. comes when we ask his forgiveness. That's right. Great. Right. Um, 
I, I won't go into like a whole bunch of detail, but but the Holland story in the book is very different um, and much more upsetting and compelling, which oh, is really? that because okay. it involves a love affair, an abortion that almost kills a woman, multiple murders, another suicide. Jesus. And they think that Holland is a Jonah and a lot of these things that we see happening are happening. Mm. And then a Marine sees probably something like a manatee out in the water with a little baby like a mom with a baby and he shoots the baby killing it oh and it's in the what's way off in the water so you can't collect it for food or anything he just does it for sport and the mom follows the surprise wailing for days oh, wow and then finally when the 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 last death of the whole Holland story happens on board the ship at that moment that this person loses their life uh the wailing stops and it is so so like it, it it plays even further into this. Of course, there's no such thing as a Jonah. Of course, there's not mystical stuff going on. And yet, you know, <laughs> pretty much everyone on board the ship kind of yeah. feels like something. We got past something here. Wow. At this moment for Jack, you know, we started out with Lucky Jack is beloved by the crew. The, the big relationship in the first act of the film is mm -hmm. Jack with the ship and the crew together and his charisma and leadership and skill and the chutzpah keep everybody together and huzzah for Lucky Jack. And that's taken a few knocks along the way, but now it's taken the biggest knock of all, even through his careful judicious choosing of the lesser of two evils on a couple of occasions, the family of the ship is broken down. The community of the ship is broken down. They're, they're failing each other in all these ways. And I'm just looking at this thinking that this is a real, yeah, you're drawing us down and down into breaking down this character and the potential of Jack. And you've got to wonder, is he going to be able to, turn the corner soon or is he going to have to deal with a few more things but right now we're sailing and not only are you sailing we have rain so people are able to wash and including Killick washing his beautiful hair <laughs> and then and everyone's pretty happy and things are going well and then we hear that there's some bird following us and Steven's super excited it might be an albatross <sighs> runs out and he's kind of climbing under the, the rigging and under the sails trying to catch a glimpse of the bird and at the same time the marine captain is aiming for the bird with his musket because he's a hunter and the moment that the bird swoops down and Stephen comes out from behind something and instead of hitting the bird the marine shoots Stephen doctor it's so it was so unexpected because this yeah. is not in the book he's shot through the abdomen and Jack is talking to the assistant surgeon Higgins and says well can you can you fix him Higgins does not give us a lot of confidence. <laughs> well, I'll need to read up on the doctor's books like study some pictures he has. Study some pictures. I love the performance of Higgins. He's like got this just look of glazed horror, like it's probably going to be okay, but it's really not going to be okay. And I have no idea and I'm terrified. And if my knife slips, my knife is slipping in the person of the captain's particular friend and the person who we've all wronged by dragging him away from the Galapagos. Poor old Higgins. And, <gasps> and in particular, to do surgery on a ship that's moving yep. is tough. Mm. Yeah. Higgins would prefer to have some land. Stephen looks deathly pale. We hear classical music and suddenly we spot a ship in the distance because Jack has found the Phantom. And he looks through the telescope and the camera comes in on his eye. Shall we beat a quarter, sir? And he looks back at Stephen. And then I love this shot. He's, he's in the cabin and what is he looking at? But the cello. I'm gonna say, no cello player ever, ever in life left their cello teetered at an angle 
propped up on a chair like that, unattended. Oh. On a ship. <laughs> on a ship. Shit. <laughs> on a ship. Me the chills. Gives me the chills. <laughs> I, I want to call out the music we really liked in the previous episode. We talked about how we liked how the, the, the score, the classical music score, kind of came into the scenes. This mm. Corelli piece that we're hearing now, it was in one of the early moments when Stephen and Jack were playing together in the cabin, and they really nicely cut it between the, the score and then Stephen and Jack playing. And it's the same thing, this Corelli Concerto Grosso, that is playing with this kind of beautiful sense of, of light and, and hope and all these nice, nice tones that we get from Corelli. And it's present in the score all the way through what's going to happen next as we go through these next stages of figuring out how Higgins can help Stephen and what's going to happen next. And it's very, very beautifully done. And I love this piece of score. And we cut to Stephen on a stretcher being carried over solid ground. The shot is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Looking just like Blakeney did when he had his arm cut off. Mm. Oh, yeah. Right. And he looks up at Jack and says, Tell me this wasn't on my account. Oh, not at all. I just needed to stretch my legs. And Stephen sees an iguana and knows that he's back on the Galapagos. This next scene, it might be the greatest scene in the movie for me, just emotionally, is we're in a tent. Higgins is getting ready to operate. And then Stephen says, No, I do this with my own hand. And we pull out a mirror, and the shot is beautiful as we see how Stephen is going to perform surgery on himself through a mirror, which A means he has to do everything backwards, which is just like it's hard to begin with. And I love the moment where Jack goes, Okay, if everything's under control, I'm going to go outside. And Stephen says, This pair of steady hands won't go amiss. That is, if, of course, you constitution for this kind of thing. Jack doesn't have the constitution for this kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) He's a tough guy, but this is rough. And watching Stephen cut into himself, I I don't know, it's just such, I mean, saying it's visceral sounds like a joke, but it is a visceral scene. I I read some, uh, some of the folks from the movie talking about it, and they had no idea that a pump had been set up so that when Stephen would cut in, all this blood and stuff would come up. And, and the guy that played Higgins said that he almost threw up. You know, it was so real there. Um, and, and one thing we should point out, I you, you two would know better than me, but my understanding is there's almost nothing in the book that Patrick O'Brien didn't have evidence for had really happened. Right. This really happened. Right. There was, yeah. there, people did perform surgery on themselves. Yes. Can't sure. imagine. We're hoping on a on on an upcoming episode, maybe fingers crossed, to interview one of the folks that helped them with a lot of the surgical procedures in the mm. movie. Who's a period yeah. expert? I love the moment where Stephen is worried about Jack. Are you all right? Yes. Which again is also right out of the book. This doesn't happen in this book, by the way. This is in HMS Surprise. This is in right. the third book. Right. Um, and it's actually Stephen right. was fighting a duel. Was how he got shot. He completes the surgery. There's a nice little grisly joke there when Higgins holds up the piece of cloth right. that was carried in by the bullet and he turns and says, oh, it should patch up nicely. And we think, oh, he's talking about Jack, but he's not talking about Jack. He's talking about the shirt that's going mm. to hold the cloth. I never thought of that. He's not talking about Stephen. <laughs> I had never right. thought about that. That's funny. And Stephen wakes up later on, looks out through the flap of the tent. It's a beautiful shot and sees people playing cricket and... Yeah. hanging out and you know and, and he finds Blakeney and asks well how long does the captain intend that we stay do you know and the answer is there's no hurry mustn't we make haste for I'm not even cases. sure it was the Akron we sighted 
And if it was, she'd be well away by now, like looking for an honest man in Parliament. No, we shall head home before peace breaks out with France, God forbid. So Stephen getting wounded made Jack give up on his pride. Right. Jack, I fear you may have burdened me with the debt I can never fully repay. Posh. This is such a funny line. <laughs> Name a shrub after me. Something prickly and hard to eradicate. That's a fantastic line. I don't think that's in the book. No, it's original and it's great. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. it's fabulous. Um, and and Steven says, no, I'll name a great tortoise after you, which in the books he does, Testudo Aubrii. Which is, by the way, the name for our top tier of Patreon supporters over on the Libra's Hole. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, and now Steven is actually getting to do what he wanted to do, which is to do some naturalizing. Come on, pack up your things, we should be going. Thanks, Council. No, to the other side of the island. So there must be at least 10 miles. Well, then there's not a moment to lose. And then Stephen sees the bird, the flightless cormorant he's been looking for on the top of a hill. He's going up the hill. He gets up to the top, doesn't see the bird, looks around, sees something, drops his hat on it, reaches his hand under the hat. And we're just focused on what did he get? What did he get? Holds up his hand, fist closed, looking at it, slowly opens it, and we see it's a Galapagos beetle. And he lifts up his hand to examine it and perfectly, perfectly framed right above his hand in the bay at the Galapagos is the ship, is the Phantom, is the Apra. It's beautiful. Really, really fantastic moment. I wanted to give a little shout out in this whole sequence as well for um, the guy playing Padine, uh, John DeSantis, I think it is, who also played uh, Lurch in the uh, in the New mm. Adams Family. Mm. And the, the, the real character of Padine, that Stephen's assistant in the book, is a sort of big, gentle giants, probably very autistic, but very, very kind of silent and within himself only speaks Irish. And so the, the Padim that we see played here doesn't say anything at all. He never speaks a word. But in every one of these scenes where he's walking around after Stephen helping look after the animals, he's doing this very, you know, it could be sort of a lumbering comic turn, but he's always doing something that's kind of touching and friendly and nice. And his physical presence is great. I just love picking him out in these scenes. And mm -hmm. we're running now, running back to tell Jack that we found the ship. Mm -hmm. And of course, Stephen's wounded and he's yeah. going slower and slower and he can't keep up. And then Blakeney, who really is an officer, like he, his real leadership, he says, no, we can't do this. Padine, you have to pick him up. And Padine picking Stephen up means they have to drop every single animal they've captured, let them all out of the cages. Mm -hmm. And Stephen loses everything. And Jack has lost everything for Stephen. Mm -hmm. And now Stephen is losing everything for Jack, which is just amazing um, in this. Yeah, it, it really, it's, you're right. It's a perfect pairing of, of sacrifice for the other. And now Jack is trying to figure out how we're going to do this. And he says, well, if we're going to take her, we have to be bloody invisible. I'm sorry you have to leave the majority of your collection behind, Stephen. In actual fact, um, Mr. Blakeney and I did make one very interesting find. And he hands Jack what looks like a stick. And then he hands him the magnifying glass. And Jack is looking and realizes that it's an insect. Tell him about it, Mr. Blake. It's a rare phasmid, sir. A phasmid? It's an insect that disguises itself as a stick in order to confuse its predators. Well, there's the clue, isn't it? <laughs> Russell Crowe gives it this little one eyebrow. Oh, that gives me an idea. Kind of look at the end of this scene. And I'm so glad. This was almost a half a step away from being a big, honking Hollywood cliche 
you know, the, the geeky kid in high school does physics and the captain of the football team doesn't want to talk to the geeky kid, so he freezes him out. And then on the night before the, gig came, the big game, the football captain realizes that the geeky kid's physics can help him throw the ball farther or something. And then everybody's okay at the end. And <laughs> Jack I, Ian, I think you've got a career ahead of you as a screenwriter. I think you should move <laughs> yeah, out here. That's perfect. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd love it in a way. But No, you wouldn't. Jack, no, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but Jack Aubrey didn't need to learn about camouflage from Stephen. Jack, Jack Aubrey knew about deception and cunning and guile yeah. and false colors right at the beginning of the books. And Stephen didn't need to show Jack camouflage in nature to get Jack's respect. So that I can see structurally, it provides a really great turning point and points us into the final act of the movie. And that's great. But as a really slightly too easy device for make, linking these two features of these two characters' lives together. I was a bit, huh, about it. <laughs> Suddenly, we have men over the side, and they're repainting the ship. And we're hiding the weapons. Now to pull this predator in close, let's bring our trap. Jack. Yes. You're the predator. Now we're, we're back all in together. You know, Jack thought he knew who he was. Then he turned around to do something else. Now he's doing this. And Jack's re reminded by Stephen of who he is, his good self. And he's still a predator and he still is jacked, Lucky Jack. And we are Lucky Jack because right away we find the ship again. And now we're creating smoke because we're pretending to be a whaler that would be process processing the whale oil. And what they're actually doing is burning ropes. And I just want to point out one other crazy thing they did. I think this one is nuts, which is, I told you there are 27 miles of rope. Hmm. Well, the rope has a certain lay to it, which means that it naturally coils a certain way. Anyone who's worked with rope knows that, that there's, a, there's a way of coiling together. And if you try to do it the wrong way, it won't work. Well, apparently modern rope has a lay to the right. So you coil it in a right direction circle. Period rope of this area has a lay to the left, coiling the opposite direction. They went through all 27 miles of rope and got it to lay the correct the correct direction wow. yes no oh wow. my gosh and, and that's one where i like go, okay that's nuts I, <laughs> I wouldn't go that far wow <laughs> wow um, but we see them preparing their chipping cannonballs they're sh sharpening swords they're putting fresh flints in all the locks on the guns good all right from now on no serves no salutes no whistles no bells nice. uh, no 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 yeah that's <laughs> which you're trying to avoid. And Stephen, in a small way, has got his anti-authoritarian thing going on here because to, to be successful here, they're going to have to break down the hierarchy and stop saluting each other. So there's a little, little, little victory there for Team Stephen. Uh, <laughs> he promotes Calamy, which is one of the midshipmen to be the acting third lieutenant. There'll be 30 or more whalers locked in the Akron's hold somewhere. After we board, Mr. Calamy should take a small party below decks and free them. You think I'm ready, sir? Are you ready, Tom? And by the way, we were talking about making your obedience earlier on. I don't know if you noticed, young Blakeney gives a little salute mm. to, uh, I've already forgotten, to, to, to thank to you. Calumny. Young Blakeney gives a little salute to Calamy and shakes his hand and congratulates him for being right. a lieutenant because now he's his superior officer. Little. And Blakeney isn't going to go over when they board. He's going to be on the quarter deck, and Blakeney is bumped. Calamy says I'm not on the boarding party. I wanted to say that. I've I know what you want to say. This is a little kid who goes, no, no, I want to be right in the middle of the fight. My answer is no. You'll lead your gun crew, and then when we board, you'll take command of the ship from here on the quarterdeck. Do I make myself clear? Take command of the ship. And the reaction from Blakeney when he realizes that he is going to be the captain, essentially, in this battle is pretty nice. And now we're below decks, and Jack is going to make a speech. 
And this is such a, like, locker room speech, you know? <laughs> now, I know there's not a faint heart among you. And I know you're as anxious as I am to get into close action. But we must bring him right up beside us before we spring this trap. That will test our nerve. And discipline will count just as much as courage. And they also talk about something which I didn't quite understand, but that they've sort of locked the guns so that they get one shot and they're not going to recoil and they don't get to fire again, which is certainly nothing that ever happens in the books. I'm thinking what they were doing there is saying, we're going to be so close to these guys and we want to take away their masts. We want to get their rigging. So if we take the back wheels off, it's going to Mm. elevate them much higher so we can shoot up because otherwise we're going to be pounding into this side, which we already know our balls bounce off of, and mm. we're likely to bounce back over and sink us. It gives the chance for a bit of rhythm in what, what we're coming into, which is this big chaotic battle scene, which will be quite long, and you know, battle scenes are really hard to follow. I, I don't think it looks terribly authentic, but it does a nice job of providing a little landmark for us in the mm. middle of this action sequence going, ah, oh, okay, they fired those guns, right. now they've got to go across to the other side. And I thought that was quite a cute move, even if it's not super authentic. And then we get the speech. England is under threat of invasion. And though we be on the far side of the world, this ship is our home. This ship is England. So it's every hand to his rope or gun, quicks the word and sharps the action. After all, surprise is on our side. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's just waiting. And the ship is getting closer and closer. The men are below decks waiting. Jack is on the deck, not dressed like a, a British officer. They're getting closer. Blakeney and Calamy wish each other luck before the battle. Good luck, Will. Good luck, Peter. See you afterwards. And you. And then the, the French ship calls to them. You have no possibility, no chance, but you have had warning. Stop now. Or we will destroy your ship. Ian, you've talked about that okay. French hail. I watched for it in the movie and went, oh my God, you're well, exactly it's a, right. It's, it's a French actor, but he's he's got the most bizarre Hollywood French, Monty Python on the Holy Grail, you know? Your father was a hamster and your mother smelled of elderberries. Kind of really corny French actor, poor guy. Thierry Segal is his name. He sounds and looks perfectly authentically French. I don't know if he got dialogue direction that was to say, sound like a Hollywood Frenchman. Um, but it was less convincing than some of the bits of Ratatouille <laughs> for me anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And just as the friendship gets really, really close, we bring up the British flag. Let fly! Let fly! And they open fire. <laughs> and now we're in, in the midst of a really, really well done battle. It's brilliant. We have our Marines firing down from the top. We have the guns going yes. off. We have grappling hooks bringing the two ships together for england for home and for the prize and they go across onto the other ship and what's so crazy as they board is we get there and there's just dead bodies everywhere and silence and it's a scary moment because you just go i don't know what's happening and the master says looks like the job is done sir and then immediately the Frenchmen reveal themselves and the master is shot in the head. And we're into the hand-to-hand combat in the battle. Yeah. Blakeney gives is giving orders as the captain of the ship. He's ordering, you know, them to fire. This is where there's a character very late in the Patrick O'Brien books where, where I go like, I'm ready to hear the adventures of Lord Blakeney. 
I right. think this kid is a great character. And everybody's in on it, like you say. And uh, even Stephen gets to yep. turn a bit badass. And, you know, again, fans right. of the books, we know that Stephen is a real mean hand with a pistol and a small sword. And we mm. do get to see a bit of that. I think we're meant to believe that he gets saved by Jack Aubrey at some point. But that's so. played on the, on the down low. I think Stephen can take care of himself. I think mm. the way they set up the, the two as fighters in the book is that in a melee... Jack is the better fighter. Yeah. In a duel, Stephen would kill Jack yeah, right, easily. Right. Yeah. right. And then we see Jack fighting. And Russell Crowe, obviously, he takes fight choreography really seriously. Yeah. He moves really, really well. The really good fight scenes below deck in these close quarters. Um, and Calamy does his job. He frees all the whalers. They come out from below. The tide of the battle is turning. Jack and Stephen end up next to each other. And there's just this sort of moment of, is it over? They struck their colors. I believe so. And now the only question is, where is the captain? And Jack goes to the captain's cabin and is looking around. And a guy comes out of nowhere and stabs Jack, who just kind of takes it. And we hear that the captain is in the sickbay. And he goes to sickbay. And there is the doctor standing over a dead body. And the doctor speaks some English and says, Before the captain died, he said I was to give you this. And he offers Jack his sword. And Jack looks down at who we think is the dead captain, and we know that the battle's over. And we also see that Calamy, the acting third lieutenant who freed the whalers, is among the dead. By the way, shout out to the little blonde kid, man. Who is that? Max Perkis. Yeah, Max Perkis. Such a great performance. Yeah. Incredible performance all through. When you compare it to Hollum, right? Hollum caught up in the whole... Um, superstition of everything, this little kid kind of has that metal from yep. the beginning. And yes. the way it's yes. played out, and he's not, he's not overt about it, he's not cocky about it, he's not privileged about it. It just is so simply with him because he knows, even as a young kid, what he wants to be. And so he maneuvers into that position. And in the moment, in the battle, he's not cowering, he's not scared. He's quite bold in a number of moments throughout the battle scene, and it's incredible to watch. And I thought that actor, I thought after this movie, he was going to go off and be Me massive. Too. And he hasn't really, he's done stuff, but he hasn't really done much to compare to what he did or the promise that you see in this film. Well, it, it, you see him do so much. You see him mm. kind to Steven, yeah. brave when he has his arm cut off. Yeah. You see him show all sorts of leadership quality, sensitive mm -hmm. to Hollum, and now. And goes into battle bravely. And now in this moment with the dead being sewed into their hammocks, he says, I want to be the one to sew Calamy in. Yeah. And yeah. He, he starts to do it one handed and finally near tears says, can you help me? Yeah. And they together, he and I think it's awkward Davies. Uh, sew right. Calamy into his hammock. Yeah. It's a great scene. And he does not put one through the nose. Yeah. Just as he had asked Calamy not to do for him. We've got Calamy dead. We've got Alan dead. And I'm looking at this going, wait a minute. I'm not sure where Weir is going with this. Uh, I, you know, clearly he's got a follow on movie in mind. But I'm looking at the books going, no, Alan's alive at the end of this book. Calamy is very alive. You know, they're all going to play important parts. And I think you keep killing off characters like this. And you're going to have Jack on the back of a dragon burning down Paris <laughs> at the end of the series. You know, you can't do this. Oh, by the way, I'd like to see that. I think that sounds yeah. great. Uh, once again, we have the funeral, and as Jack reads the names, and particularly when he gets to Calamy, yeah. really near tears, the midshipmen are crying, and there's something about the words, We therefore commit their bodies to the deep, to be turned into corruption, 
Looking for the resurrection of the body when the sea shall give up her dead and the life of the world to come. And we see them under the flags being dropped into the water. And it's the moment of realization for Jack that he can bring the family back together and he did restore the community of the ship, but it had a cost. And if yeah. he's going to carry on being a leader, he's going to have to know how to navigate through these moments. And he, he does it really well. You know, there's a bit of development for Jack. He's the more mature, less kind of swaggering version of Jack, I think. Mm. That's and, a good point. A little bit of geekery about the funeral service, if I can for a second. Um, mm. they, they say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father who art in heaven. And just after we get to deliver us from evil, Stephen Maturin stops praying because he's a Catholic. And mm. And I was that kid. I, I was. Oh, wow. I, as a, I, I I went to Catholic I, primary school, <laughs> and I would I would I would stop three quarters of the way through the Lord's prayer in in assembly in my Anglican state comprehensive school, and go, well, why are they still praying? We have to stop and wait for the priest now. So really, really oh, good. That's awesome. We we leave off the Protestant refrain of the doxology at the end. That's that awesome. and of course I would never, being the Jew here, I would never <laughs> have picked up on this. <laughs> um, that's great. <laughs> One of the moments from the book that I love is you see the, all the officers standing there with their hats front and back and Jack's a yeah. ship. And, and the, the way there's the way Weir has them spread out like that. So you can just see that contrast stand out. You know, I think probably lost to most people in the audience, but to everybody who reads the book, it's like, yes, they got it. Because, um, Jack, that's the old fashioned way of wearing the hat. Exactly. Hair clubbed at the back, a Ford ship hat, just like it, Nelson It's wore. so funny. It's such a weird hat. And the fact that this weird hat that you wore sideways, someone at some point went, hey, what if I wear it this way? And then everyone went, yeah, that's cool. I mean, I guess it's like a base, wearing a baseball cap backwards or something. Um, well, and if you're sailing into the wind, I would think front and back. Yeah, and I love that in a moment of sadness that Blakeney brought Stephen, the Galapagos beetle, and now yeah. Stephen yeah. returns the favor and brings the beetle to Blakeney. It's awesome. Uh, we're giving orders, and Pullings is getting orders to take this other ship that they've just taken, the Acheron, to Valparaiso. He's going to have some of these whalers as his crew. I believe uh, Mr. Hogg would be a good choice for sailing master. However, that will be your decision, Captain Pullings. Now Captain Pullings, no longer mm -hmm. Lieutenant Pullings. And for those you don't remember, that's Jarvis from the MCU. So the original oh. Jarvis from the MCU. Yeah. He was in um, Agent Walker. Is that what it was called? Oh, Captain Agent Carter. Agent Carter, the series. So, yeah. And of course, who's who's Stephen Matron? But Jarvis. Right. The yeah. actress. Oh, shit. <laughs> My brain just blew up. That's a great point. <laughs> Holy shit. I didn't even thought of that. I was like, I was like, oh, it's cool. I'll point out that it's Jarvis. Oh, wait, there's another Jarvis on the damn ship. Can, That's could brilliant. you imagine, by the way, taking Patrick <laughs> O'Brien to watch the Marvel movies? <laughs> oh god he'd have, he'd have, he'd have notes i think <laughs> yeah, he would he would get up and walk out in like 10 minutes i think <laughs> yeah. depends on which one you show him depends on which one you show him. well he, uh, he'd, he'd, he'd go right to the connection to classical mythology just as he would if you were sitting watching star trek he'd go ah right this is a story of right yeah, Hercules. And they'd be like they stole that from me they stole well, that from me <laughs> it's funny i was reading about some of the folks talking about making the movie. And they said that everybody working on the script and, and pulling this together kept talking about Homer, oh. Jane Austen, and Butch Cassidy mm. and the Sundance oh, wow. Kid. That's understandable. As the buddies. And they said that these names came up, you know, over the years of development, everybody would throw mm. these in the mix here. And it is, you know, for O'Brien, it's such a strange mix, which the Marvel movies 
Large, yeah. Largely are not. And we send Tom off to his new ship, his new command with cheers. We're down in the cabin. We feel like this is an ending. The instruments are warming up. Killick is making toasted cheese and saying, ah, here we go again. And Stephen is looking at that chart of the Galapagos excited because once again he's gonna get his chance to do that naturalizing <laughs> that keeps get taken away and he happens to say i'll rest easier when i know they've reached shore so many wounded only that poor unfortunate higgins to tend to them still he's better than no doctor at all and jack goes <laughs> i met that doctor i spoke to him no he died a fever months ago and there's a long <laughs> look and Suddenly we go, oh, shit. <laughs> and Jack passes the word for Mowat and says, Mr. Mowat, change of course. Southeast by east. We'll intercept the Acheron and we'll escort them into Valparaiso. <laughs> Not going to the Galapagos. And I love that he says, And William? Sir? Beat to quarters. Very good, sir. <laughs> hey, and Stephen looks at that picture of the Galapagos on the charts Subject to the requirements of the service. <laughs> and, and I love Jack. Jack's small, small consolation. The bird's flightless. Yes. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> right. And this bit of music is so great and so oh. joyful. Yes. Jack strums the violin like a guitar. And then Stephen joins in bowing on the cello. And what I love too is that we see the drums beating to quarters and we see all of the sailors running around and doing all their stuff, but all we hear is the music. After bowing for a while, Stephen switches and picks up the cello, also like a guitar, and starts plucking at its strings and Jack <laughs> switches to bowing on the violin. just about works which just about works the cello's not really designed but you can't you can there's another extra extra music shout out here because they had they obviously had a really good time putting the music together and we talked mm -hmm. about how um russell crowe and uh, and uh, bettany had enjoyed getting coaching and learning how to do the miming really well and i think they were feeling right at the top of their game because they decided to double down on the miming so it's in a key where the cellist mm -hmm. is playing it very very high he's playing in his very high position way down the fingerboard which is Difficult to do for a player anyhow, and super difficult to look convincing at if you're miming. Hmm. And there's this little extra authentic touch. Paul Bettany just does this, does this little kind of hammer on and pluck silently to himself to make sure he's at the right pitch before he comes in and plays. I'm like, that is flexing your cellist music miming chops to the maximum. I was really, really impressed. That's great. And they, they did the same thing that they did with the Corelli. You know, they started out with them playing in the cabin and via the mix and the score, it ends up being most of the main closing title. And it's this Boccherini piece, uh, Nocturnal Street Music of Madrid. And it's, huh. and it's great. And it's our new theme song played by my, fam by my favorite cellist, oh, Ian Brown. Oh, is that you playing on the, on, that's great. Oh, yeah. wow. That's amazing. That's wonderful, <laughs> Ian. Um, Damn it. And what's so interesting so to me. One of us can play an play with Steve. Damn it. Anyway, all right, go ahead. Yes. <laughs> I think it's ne maybe next season on The Cinephiles. <laughs> yeah. Steve and John learn how to play yeah. instruments. <laughs> we'll do that. <laughs> awesome. And what I think so interesting about the ending is this is an ending that feels like there's going to be another movie. Yes. God yeah. damn it. Yes. Oh, I know. 
Right. Because we're going to continue. It's The adventure continues. That is how this ending feels. And and there's this little Russian doll, uh, doll thing of the Acheron was the predator. Now Jack's the predator. And the Acheron captain is the guy who disguised himself to get away. And we're like, okay, so so what happens next? So in the next one, who's the mm. predator and who's going right. to be disguised? And we're chasing after that. And I knew, I knew when I saw this, that the way this is set up, I'm searching all over to stream the mm. next movie. And there is none. But but there supposedly is one in the making now. Can you guys, you guys are closer to Hollywood. Any, all, any all I know is they're in development on a prequel. Okay. So I've always felt, by the way, that this should be a series, a TV series, not, yeah. not a movie. Without question. Um, and particularly as you read the book, it feel, the books feel just this, this long continuing story. Right. Um, one thing that just occurred to me is that's really strange is the feeling of, okay, we're ready for our next adventure and the next adventure never comes, is there is 21. And 21 is the unfinished oh. book of Patrick O'Brien that he demanded would never be published if he didn't complete it. And he didn't complete it and it is published. And I have listened right. to it multiple times. It literally ends mid-sentence yeah. with all of this stuff sort of being set up, like Stephen might be having to fight a deal, duel and maybe he's going to get married again and all these things are happening and then it's over. And the feeling of, right. oh, there's not more is so sad every time I get to it. And that's a little bit how I feel at the end of this movie. Uh, they finished principal photography in October 2002. It took months and months and months to do the visual effects. It opened up number two at the box office behind Elf, by the way. Uh, mm. Elf beat oh God. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> Elf is a fun Christmas yeah, movie. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Uh, and and right. this is a little bit more, the price of admission is a little higher. Uh, it grossed $212 million, which for a, a movie with a $150 million budget is a failure, you yeah. know. Because you have all the marketing expenses and all the other expenses. So it like just recoups and that's it. Mm -hmm. It had good reviews, but but a little bit mixed. It received 10 nominations, Oscar nominations, for picture, director, cinematography, sound editing, editing, production design, costumes, makeup, hair, and, uh, and effects. And it won for cinematography and sound editing. It's interesting that none of the actors are nominated. Screenplay is mm -hmm. not nominated. Right. And this is the year that Lord of the Rings Return of the King took, swept all that stuff. Do you want to ask me which one I'd rather watch? Uh, I, I already know the answer, but would you like to discuss yeah. which one you'd rather watch? I'll watch Master and Commander way more than I'll ever watch uh, Return of the King for the rest of my life. That's for sure. I think Master and Commander is just a way more interesting movie and thrilling movie, with which doesn't have six different endings. So that's what I'll say at the end. That's what I'll say. Not to offend the uh, the other British person on our true, but I just don't want to just tell you those movies don't hold the same magic to me for me as other people. And I think Master and Commander was criminally overlooked and and didn't make enough money. And it's heartbreaking. I mean, but these ships, ship, ship films rarely make. I mean, unless you got Johnny Depp acting the fool, they rarely make a lot of money. So I don't know why they sank one hundred fifty million dollars into a film like this, but I'm glad they did because it's a beautiful end product. And sadly there's not enough people who've enjoyed this to clamor for a sequel or clamor for something. And maybe the prequel will work out. Maybe the series will work out, but we'll never get Russell Crowe and right. Paul Bettany, who I thought were fantastic right. in these characters in the film. You, you know what I think about the Lord of the Rings thing 
is I think the technical Oscars. Technically, I I have no argument. I mean, there's oh, remarkable. Yes. Yeah, it's a big achievement. Yeah. Yes, yes. I think totally. I think the best picture is like a lifetime achievement award. It's mm. it's it's sort oh. of the achievement of this whole thing is pretty amazing. I don't think it's a best picture at all. I I, I think it's an impressive impressive yeah. set of films, but I don't think it's the best picture. Um, I will give my final thoughts first, which is exactly what I said at the beginning of this, which is my love for the books prevents me from really being objective about this film, is that I think it is an unbelievable achievement. I think that the creation of this world is spot on and spectacular. I think the performances are great. The music is great. It's 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 a really subtle movie, particularly for the 2000s in terms of you're just kind of immersed in this environment. And this is not the characters that I love. And in particular, Stephen, it's the, the lack of Stephen Maturin is like a crime. You know what it is? I'll call this guy Stephen. This is, but it's not Stephen Maturin. He's just not, he doesn't, he doesn't have all of, Jack is a good approximation with some differences. Stephen is just, it's a shadow of himself and he's my favorite character. So I think this is a remarkable film, but personally, because of my experience with the books, I can't be objective about it. Um, I will say this. I love this movie to pieces. I think it's a fantastic film, perfect period piece, incredible performances, and the right amount of action mixed in with the right amount of step, keeping your foot off the gas and letting us savor these characters, letting us see what they can do in these roles and let us letting us live in the environment in the world of this time. You know, you can move so fast with technology, but it's always good to remember that what was going on, what we consider period pieces were technologically advanced at the time. So it's like this ship that he's chasing is a bit of a higher end ship. So he's got to do these other things to go around. So it's always good to remember old school and new school is always a fun battle. And uh, I enjoy that throughout this movie, both verbally and physically in the battle sequences as well. And it's a movie that challenges you and makes you question these things. Cause yeah. you, if you look at the ship, like the world, sometimes a leader has to do certain things. Sometimes certain decisions have to be made. And yes, you may not like them. They may hurt you. You may think it's morally wrong, but if in the end the entire world survives, like the ship survives, was it the wrong decision? So it's, what were they the wrong decisions? And I like that this film challenges you in that way. And it's, it's an excellent film. That's again, I'll say it again. It's a damn shame that there wasn't a sequel. And I do kind of love that last bit of them playing because mm. notice what they do. Each one is opposite to the other. They're the yin and the yang. When one is bowing, one is strumming like a guitar. When one starts to strum like a guitar, the other one starts to bow. They balance each other out. They're essential. They're the left and right brain of the ship. And I appreciate the movie so much for that. Ian, what are your thoughts? Still a big fan of the movie. I think I'm fine now i don't think i was completely fine at the time but i'm fine now with the fact that the movie exists and i don't really <laughs> wish it that, that sounds really pompous I, I don't i don't sit there wishing it was otherwise because i think they made some really great decisions about sharing some of the themes and some of the characters and some of the ideas i think they made some really great albeit expensive decisions about all the authenticity i remember when we got to talk to godlaka we kind of asked ourselves the question why why, why did they spend 150 million dollars making when some of that went on making it so kind of fingertip authentic and part of the answer, I think, has come from this conversation we've had in these last two episodes. I think it gave the performers and the whole of the crew the confidence to say, we're going to make something that's really great. And it was a way of challenging the cast, 
certainly challenging the principals and the, the the folks who get lots of face time they came up with some really really great kind of ensemble performances i particularly loved all the lower deck guys we said last time their faces their thieves and the debauchers oh it's just great i love watching them i love seeing how they are together in the scenes behind the principles and i think that's something i'll watch over and over again way more than like you john way more than i'll watch lord of the rings i still wish in the future we can get something not more like the books but that will take its time i'd really love mm. to hear some more of that jane austen the patrick o'brien peppery dialogue which is such a joy in the books and we had to get something different we got something great in the movie but there's something else that i think we can get out of it especially with the kind of folks that are in the you know in the world of acting and screenwriting now i think we can get something really sparky out of this these great books so and i want to say thank you i really really enjoyed watching the movie again and it's made me pay new attention to bits of the books so um, final pitch read the o'brien books they're awesome ultimately i mean i love the movie i sort of echo what all of you have said it's not the books but it brings a lot of the books out, which is great. And it brought a lot of people to read Patrick mm. O'Brien because we hear this all the time with our listeners, which is fabulous. I love that. Um, O'Brien said many times, you know, I don't write about history. I don't write about the Navy. I don't I write about the human condition. And and so much of this movie brings that out. I mean, even the discussions we were led into bring that out. And I think about the human condition without women. And I go, my God, how can we deal with the human mm-hmm. condition with no women? And with the exception of the girl with the green parasol, mm-hmm. that's it. That's what we have for women in the movie. And so I love this movie and I want the series and I want Diana and Sophie. And I want, you know, we always talk about Jane Austen. I want the Dickens, you know, Dickens minor characters, all which they did a phenomenal job in the movie, but even more so. I mean, there's there's more of them. There's more going on. Uh, there's so much there. So incredible movie. Their authenticity blew me away. Their ability to do exactly what O'Brien did. I mean, we may go a book or two and never have an action. Yeah. You know, and everybody thinks, oh, it's naval warfare. We're going to see this stuff. But they did the same thing, just the right amount of mix. So, so many things that they did right. I'll, I'll like Ian, thank you guys for having us on and for giving me that opportunity to watch the movie the way I read the books to slow down and savor it and enjoy the parts of it, as opposed to my, I just saw through it and here's my quick reaction. So what you guys do, and I can't imagine how you do it every week is amazing. Well done, keep up the great work. Well, thank and you. Thanks. And that, so that's what we think of Master and Commander of the Far Side of the World. We'd love to hear what you think. Visit us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for The Cinephiles. You can follow the show on Twitter at Cine underscore files, Instagram, The Cinephiles Podcast. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or YouTube or Spotify or Stitcher. Leave your comments on YouTube, your reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you want to support the show, you could do it at patreon.com slash The Cinephiles. You can buy or stream every film we've ever reviewed, including Master and Commander, through our website, cinephiles.net and if you want to reach me you can do it at sr morris on twitter sr morris one on instagram and we talked a little bit about star trek again you want some more star trek check out enterprise incidents john how would people find you you can always find me at the roca says on twitter and on instagram and head on over to twitch as well the outlaw nation all one word uh there and my uh, youtube channel youtube.com slash john roca says so much going on there come be a part of it and of course my other podcasts the top 10 and the Geek Buddies are out there for you all to enjoy as well. Gentlemen, where are you in the journey of Patrick O'Brien on the Lubber's Hole? We are right in the midst of Reverse of the Metal. So we've just left Far Side of the World. It's perfect. The timing <laughs> is perfect. And 
Um, you know, some of the stuff that was really important in the movie is just coming back up again in Reverse of the, uh, Reverse of the Metal. The end of Reverse of the Metal is makes me weep uncontrollably. It is such a beautiful, beautiful moment. If people wanted to find you on the internet, how would they do um, that? You could search for The Lubber's Hole anywhere where you might normally get your podcasts. Um, the podcasts are also out there on YouTube as well. Look for The Lubber's Hole on YouTube. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Hole Lubber's. And we're also on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash lovers hole. And we hang out in some of the other weird corners of the internet where Patrick O'Brien fans hang out. We're on the Facebook groups and we're sometimes on Reddit and we're other places where we're not supposed to be. And the gun room, the gun room of hmssurprise.org. Well, thank you both so yes, much. Thank it you. Was so great having all of your expertise on the show. And I think that is it for this week. We will see you next time for another great film on The Cinephiles. So, Mike, great times talking to John and Steve. Great times talking about the movie. What did you think? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's so nice to slow down and uh, and and watch the movie like we read the books together. And I, I don't know how Steve and John do it every week. You know, what, what fabulous insight into movies. And I'm so glad they allowed us to share this Master and Commander experience with us. Oh, I couldn't agree more. It was really great fun. Now... If you love movies, as Mike's already said, go and check out their podcast. And if you love the Star Trek connections that we've been picking up on, right. then go and check out Steve's Star Trek episode-by-episode episode review podcast. He's got some great guests coming up as well. We really hope that you might enjoy that. Meanwhile, Mike, we've got Reverse of the Medal. We've got the great 1814 stock exchange scandal as represented in the world of Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin. <laughs> we've got Diana. We've got Ray. We've got all kinds of things to take care of. We've got perhaps, for me anyway, some of the most moving scenes in the canon, one in particular, oh. coming up in the next few weeks, and I'm dying to get to it. Egan, what would you say next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? I should like that of all things.